See if this headline from this past summer sounds familiar. Leeds fans hail $13 million German international Robin Koch signing as a blessing in disguise from defender Ben White. Or this one. Leeds center back solution. Robin Koch will provide Leeds with a cheaper and better center back option to Ben White. (laughs) I mean, did you all really think, I mean, really, genuinely think that you were going to be signing this supposed prized German international for only $13 million in the modern market? I mean, really. You really connected the dots between $13 million and prized German international center back and not one time that raised any type of suspicion? I mean, let's think about who he's competing against to get into the German squad. We know Boateng's been exiled, but who else is in there? Nicolas Sula? God, I think I can backpedal faster than Sula can sprint forward, but okay. Emre Chan. Oh, God. Robin Koch actually is one of Germany's best center back options. <laughs> oh, have it. Oh, Besuma. Somebody called 911. East Besuma took the ball from you again. And there ain't nothing you can do. The Malayan owns the midfield. He's a seagull. Oh, yeah. And I love clean sheets with Robert Sanchez and sensual chest backs. From Captain Dunk with Ben White and Adam Webster marauding forward off. There's one thing we can do. It's play out from the back. Up the Albion, baby. Yes. Get in. Brighton Banter, episode six. Happy May to everybody. And it is an absolutely immaculate afternoon here in South Florida. The sun is out. And because I live on the Manatee River, I can actually see seagulls flying outside of my balcony. And how fitting that is because, my goodness, were the seagulls of Brighton and Nova Albion Football Club absolutely flying yesterday. I said it a few months ago on the pod, and I'll say it again today. Heck, I think I even said it last week. If you're going to design a system to absolutely dismantle the Bielsa system in the most brutally efficient way possible, it would be Potterball. What a performance. Graham Potter's a genius. What a result. 2-0. Pascal Gross converting from the penalty spot on 14 minutes after Danny Welbeck drew the foul from Alioski. What was was Alioski doing on that play? That was embarrassing. If you were a Leeds fan... And then Danny Welbeck wrapping it up on 79 minutes. What a turn and finish that was. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But Brighton completely controlled the game with with 42% of the ball, pumping another 17 shots, five of which were on target on Leeds. And let's be honest, the 2-0 scoreline flatters Leeds United in a big way. We'll sort of work our way from back to front here and use the starting lineup that Potter rolled out there to analyze the game. We'll start with Robert Sanchez, not that he was particularly busy. 
He's credited with two saves, although I'm trying to think of a save that he had to make where he also moved his feet. Um, also, Robert Sanchez is way better than than Millier, uh, the Leeds keeper, but I'm, I'm not going to get into that, but I don't, I don't rate him at all. But Robert Sanchez, he's, he's just oozing confidence. He's on great form right now. Happy for him again that he picks up another clean sheet. And it's just so awesome to see how disturbingly confident he is on the ball. He, no matter the situation Brighton are in, playing out from the back, and, and sometimes we get ourselves into some tricky situations, but he's always available for the back pass. He's never standing in front of his own goal. He's always, you know, way off to one side or another or way above, you know, his own goal line and, and even his own 18-yard box. And yeah, Robert Sanchez was great on the day, but how about his defenders in front of him? And and we'll start with Ben White because, my goodness, did he make some just charging runs forward, picking the ball up in the back, charging through the midfield, gaining access into the final third, and trying to kickstart a few Albion attacks himself. And And Ben White has improved so much, firstly as a defender this year, from where he was at the beginning of the season, especially just with patience. I mean, if you think about the Manchester United game with the Amex, for example, where he kind of got schooled by a more experienced Marcus Rashford. And I actually kind of like using that it, that example um, for Ben White because it's just such a classic young defender situation where he's, he's obviously nervous, he's extremely uncomfortable being in that one-on-one situation with, with Rashford, having to defend at almost a full sprint. He's diving in at, at the first opportunity he gets. Uh, you know, Rashford's taking advantage of that ultimately kind of walks him all the way back into his own goal before before Rashford finishes. But you're just not seeing those type of plays from Ben White anymore. He's extremely patient now as a defender. He's using his athleticism. He's using his comfortability on the ball to get himself out of trouble. And and once he learns what to do, once he gets into those final 30 yards, for example, he's, he's going to be a really special player. Not, not that he isn't already, but when you just think about some of those marauding runs forward that he made during this Leeds game, he always seemed to not quite know what to do once he got to the edge of the Leeds 18, for example. And once he develops those skills, because even our attackers don't know what to do a lot of the times in their own 18 or once they approach the 18 or once they approach an opposing back line. So I'm, I'm not expecting a young, a young Ben White to make those types of plays, to make the right decision, to pick the right pass, pick the right weight of pass in the final third. Once he does, once he does understand those types of situations, he is going to be just a true joy to watch. And then Adam Webster, I thought he was back up to speed yesterday for sure. We talked a little bit about about his rust coming back after missing, what was it, six weeks uh, through injury. I was expecting him to be a little bit rusty, and I don't have anything bad to say about him because of it. But we, we know what Adam Webster can do. He threw some crunching tackles in this Leeds game, but I did think he was back up to speed, getting back towards his best. And then there's Lewis Dunk. I mean, captain's performance, skipper's performance, that chest back to Robert Sanchez. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Under pressure with Rodrigo breathing down his back. He's five yards out in front of his own goal. Cross whipped in with pace. Oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just chest this one back to Sanchez. Are you kidding me? That is one of the Brighton plays of the season. That is one of the best defensive plays 
that you'll see anywhere all year. I stand by that 100%. Great blocks, threw a few last-ditch tackles in there. Not that the Brighton back line were really under that much pressure. But he just gets his body on the line for every situation, no matter what. And that's what your captain should do. And how is he not in the England squad? What is Southgate? Southgate, hello. What is Southgate looking at? I mean, the English back line is a disaster waiting to happen. Brighton have conceded 11 goals in the last 17 games, I think. But are any of our back three going to get called up? No, of course not. Are any of them even going to get considered? No, of course not. I mean, it's, it is it is a disgrace. Lewis Dunk should have been in the England squad for the last few years, to be completely honest. And he certainly should be in the squad now. He's, he's on top form. Joel Veltman, I thought he was solid on the right side. Of course, him and him and Burn, uh, him and Big Dan Burn almost put one in themselves, um, which would not have been been good. But I thought he had another stellar performance, and he's been nothing short of spectacular filling in for Tariq Lamptey at right back. That was not what Joel Veltman was brought into the squad to do. That was not the position I'm sure Graham Potter imagined him playing for so much of the season. But I mean, Joel Veltman is honestly a contender for player of the season. He's not going to get it, and I'm not saying that he even really should get it. But when you think about what he's brought to the club this year, what he's brought to the team, game in, game out, if you, I mean, think about it. If you really, can you think of a, of a bad game Veltman has had on the right side? I can't. He has been nothing short of spectacular. And... For what he was brought into the club to do, to perform the way he's performing, especially in a position where I know he's played on the right side before, but this, what what he's been doing for Brighton this year has been absolutely fantastic, and and he should get acknowledged for his contributions this year. Big Dan Byrne on the other side, great performance, and I, I thought he held his own quite nicely. I thought he was isolated quite often one-on-one, but defended pretty well. He had a fun little battle going on with uh, with Paveda for Leeds, but again, he held his own. Held his own really well. I don't have a lot to add to Big Dan Burns' performance, but it just impresses me every time he's out there with his ability to defend one on one. It you know it's got to be awkward for him with his size, but but again, Graham Potter has done a masterful job with Dan. When you think about Dan Burns playing as a left wing back, it I, I, I still can't believe it, but he was he was great yesterday, and he's been great all all year. He's had a few a few shaky performances, of course, the Wolves game, for example, where I think he conceded two penalties, or certainly gave up the one penalty and tried to concede a second. But he's recovered from that, recovered from his injury, and I thought he was I thought he was fine yesterday. And the back line, really, the back line yesterday was was fantastic. We know Leeds can attack. No leads can attack in droves, and our back three, our back five, whatever you want to call it, defended defended immaculately. Moving into the midfield, a midfield without Adam Lallana, by the way, Eve Basuma, unbelievable. He completely controlled a Leeds team. Again, everybody knows that they can attack, that they can attack in droves, they can come in waves, and. They had nothing. They had nothing in terms of this expansive, rapid, attacking system that Bielsa likes to employ. And I know the man bun wasn't out there, and that hurts Leeds. It does. I think it does hurt the, their build-up play especially. But but guess what? It, it wouldn't have mattered one bit. 
Basuma could have been outnumbered two or three to one, and, and, and in those odds, he feels quite comfortable because throughout the entire game, it took two, three, four players to knock him off the ball. He was skipping past people. He was winning challenges. He was diving into challenges on the sidelines as the ball was going out of play, challenges that he had no business even participating in. There was no reason for him to make that tackle. He, he was making that tackle. That's what Yves Basuma brings to the table. That's why he's being t- sought after by, by basically everybody. I've seen PSG now linked with him. I mean, it's, it's getting silly in terms of some of his supposed suitors. But what a masterclass in the midfield. And I thought, and may, maybe this was just me, but I thought he ventured forward a lot more than he often does. And what I mean by that is I thought he was picking up the ball in more advanced positions. We know that he'll drop deep. I mean, he's a defensive midfielder. He'll come into the back line to collect the ball. Creates little one-twos with our defenders as we begin to play out from the back and as we begin to move the ball up the pitch a little bit. But I thought he picked up the ball in some more advantageous positions, which I, which I really like. I thought against Sheffield, for example, he tried to do a lot himself, but he was always picking up the ball you know, so deep he had to dribble three or four players and then have one from about 25 yards, which we know he's capable of, but at the same time, that is, you know, in terms of difficulty level, you know, that's a 10. That's a difficulty level of 10. But I thought in this Leeds game, he was, he was, he was picking up the ball just a little bit a little bit further up the pitch, and I think that allows him to use his pace, to use his creativity, to use his dribbling ability, which is which is second to none, really. And and I thought he created a lot from you know what is usually a deeper what his his deeper midfield role. And I mean, of course, Ibasuma, <laughs> he is the actual player of the season. Um, you know, let's and let's not forget that. But what a, what a privilege it is to watch him be a smooth operator in the middle of the park every game. It's unbelievable. Pascal Gross playing alongside Basuma. Again, great penalty. Again, I'm not sure you should be taking uh, Brighton's penalty kicks. Uh, Lewis Dunk probably gets my vote. Um, and then again, he, he gets the Joel Veltman Award as well for, for you know, servant of the season because... Pascal Gross, again, we know all about the signing, you know, a million dollars from, gosh, where did he come from? Ingolstadt, wasn't it, in Germany when they were relegated? But I digress. He he was wonderful yesterday, great quality on the ball. He he delivered a few really nice set pieces. I thought thought Brighton probably should have scored from a couple of those set pieces. But again, just continues to perform day in, day out. He's not the most athletic guy. He's not the paciest guy. We know that. Goodness, he puts in a shift. I mean, I want to. I want to work for Pascal Gross. I mean, he he is he inspires me uh, as a fan watching him play. And he he gives his all uh, every game, regardless of circumstance, regardless of where he's playing, regardless of scoreline, where Brighton are in the table. You know, Pascal Gross is as consistent as they come. And, and moving a little f- further forward, I thought I thought Leandro Trossard was pretty crafty yesterday. He did miss the sitter on 40 minutes, and one thing I've noticed recently, actually, with with Brighton's misses, and some of them have just been shocking, and a few of them the more again again yesterday. But nobody ever just hits the ball into the ground. Like, like isn't that rule rule one? You've got a you've got a bouncing ball, you've got a ball coming out of the air, you've got a ball pinged at you. Just hit hit the ball into the ground. Give it a chance. Give it a chance to go in. Hit the ball into the ground. Let it bounce up. If you don't hit it right at the keeper, it's going in no matter how high or how hard you kick it. 
hit the ball into the ground. Mope never does that. Trossard never does that. I feel like we the amount of times that we blast over from eight yards is insane. And, and, and I don't know what Trossard was thinking there. Maybe he was trying to hit it into the ground. But I don't really feel like he was based on, based on the technique that he went with. Just hit the ball into the ground. If he hits the ball into the ground there, it's 2-0, period. So that, that was not a good look. Mope operating in his traditional false nine. And, ah, oh, God, he, he missed a sitter on 67. Um, 67 minutes. That was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. If you want to look at someone who has no confidence whatsoever, look at Neil Mope. Look at his attempt and then look at his facial expression on 67 minutes. All, all he had to do, again, was just make a solid contact on it. What is he, 10 yards out? And he just, he, he scuffs it into the ground with the, with the tamest effort ever. I'm not even sure it would have made it to the goal, <laughs> uh, even if it had been on target. But, he's, you know, how can you, be, how can you be 10 yards out in front of goal, receive a pass that's, the ball is basically rolling on the ground. It's not hit with a ton of pace at him. And and he misses and he misses the goal by by three or four goal widths. It, it, it's incredible. And and his link up play his link up play was pretty good. And, and that's the I wish his I wish his link up play wasn't so good because you know we all say oh, oh Mope isn't good enough this Mope isn't good enough that and he's and for me he's not as clinical he's not clinical enough of a striker as he needs to be as where Brighton need him to be in order to get to where Brighton want to get in the table. And that is not 14th, by the way. But I, if his link-up play wasn't great, you know, we could just all ax him from the team immediately. But he works really hard for the team. He tracks back. He he, he, he presses the ball constantly. He's a, He is a bundle of energy out there. And his link-up play with the other strikers, well back in Trossard, and with the midfield in general, because he does come deep to get on the ball, it is really good. And, and you know, if you want to keep the same formation and you want to take Mope out, that's fine. But who are you going to replace him with? I mean, honestly, either in, the, either in his false nine position or if you want Trossard to slot into the false nine, then on the right side. You know, I'd like to keep the same formation and, and put Alexis in there because I think Alexis McAllister could give us a little bit more in the attack. I think maybe he could, he could create a few more chances. Maybe he could even put one in the net. But I think it's probably true that Alexis McAllister doesn't work as hard for the team. He's not going to track back as ferociously as Mope does. He's not going to press the ball as hard as Mope does. He's not going to be that player on the He's not going to make a tackle. So who are you going to put in? You're going to put in Jakob Moder? You know, no, he's 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 not that's not his position. Steven Alzate, again, not his position. Proper. No, it's not his position. Connolly, uh, no. Ali Razi Hanbash? Um no, 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 no. Jose Scardo? You know, maybe, but he's got to play on the left side, and his buildup probably isn't isn't up to speed and certainly not up, up to speed for Potterball. Andy Zakiri, it's the same thing. I think Andy Zakiri is probably a more composed finisher than Neil Mope if he was given a run of games. But I think the reason he hasn't been given that run of games is that he's still learning the game at the senior level, and that has nothing to do with his with his poaching ability as a striker. It has to do with the other intangibles that Graham Potter wants from a striker. Come back, help defensively, close the ball down, press constantly, be a bundle of energy out there, link up, little flicks, little balls around the corner, little one-twos. 
that's a part of it, of Andy Zakiri's game that probably isn't there yet, which is why he's not seeing the field as much as as, as the average fan honestly probably wants. But what I hope Andy Zakiri is doing is learning from Danny Welbeck because, oh my goodness, was Danny Welbeck absolutely class yesterday. Yes, he drew the penalty. Yes, he made Alioski look like a fool. But but the finish on his goal and that touch, Kreuz turns all over the place on this team, and clearly everybody's been spending some time with, a little extra time with Pascal Gross. But that was a stunning finish. A Cruyff turn out of midair? Are you kidding me? Really, are you kidding me? Takes the entire back line of leads out of the play with a single touch? Oh, glorious. And then the thing with Danny Welbeck is we know he's a, f- a finisher. We know he's calm in front of goal. But it's it's the touch. It's it's can he can he can he set himself up with his touch so that he can get a shot away? Can he can he can he set himself up with a touch where he can where he can move past some defenders? Can he be a smooth enough operator in the 18-yard box to get himself in position? And in this in this play, he was composure to find the corner. Absolutely, you betcha! Right into the bottom right corner, no chance, Millier. And one thing that I've really been impressed with about Danny Welbeck is is yes, we we know he can finish, but he he works hard for the team. I mean, Danny Welbeck comes back. He comes way back. And I know he's playing as as almost a left winger, so he does have a little bit more defensive responsibility than, let's say, if he was if he was a number nine, for example. But but he comes way back. I mean, he defends in our in his own eighteen. It's it's fantastic. He he presses the ball pretty hard, and he comes back and he he wins the ball back in midfield. I mean, it's 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 absolutely fantastic. And and I think Danny Welbeck coming in off the left, I think last podcast I was saying that since we're not really playing him as a as a sort of a poaching number nine, we're not really going to ever get the best out of him, but maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, maybe maybe having him at wide, making those out-to-in runs, coming a little shorter, getting on the ball, and giving himself a little bit more space and a little more time to figure out what he wants to do to get himself into the right position. I mean, maybe that's exactly what Danny Welbeck needs. So moving on from yesterday's game for a second, one thing I wanted to also discuss on this podcast was an interesting uh, Brighton & Hove independent article on raising cash this summer, Brighton raising cash this summer, to reinvest in a striker. And I thought it was pretty fascinating, so I wanted to go through it because as this season begins to wind down, Brighton obviously aren't going to get relegated. Uh, the rumor mill begins, um, you know, with summer moves that the club um, are trying to make or want to make um, or should make or shouldn't and, and so on. And, and I think we're all in agreement that Brighton need a more clinical striker in front of goal, a true Glenn Murray replacement, a poacher, if you will, a, a player that can simultaneously be a target man. Of course, I'm referring to someone who's over six feet tall. But who can and can hold the ball up, but who can also participate in Potterville, who can also participate in the buildup of attacks, who can drop deep, get on the ball, is comfortable with both his back to goal and running at the goal with speed with the ball, making the right passes, being able to pick little one twos, 
being able to play little flicks and little little cute balls in and around the 18-yard box to create the kind of offense that Graham Potter wants to create. And, and I, again, I think we're all in agreement that Brighton need a striker, maybe a right winger, um, a backup shot stopper, you know, someone who can compete with Robert at least. But I digress. The striker, <laughs> the striker is what we really all want. And I think it is Brighton's biggest void at the moment. Um, anyways, the Independent basically suggested that Brighton could raise 83 million pounds in anticipated player departures, which is a lot. Uh, but I wanted to go through with it because if it's true, that does bring a lot of players sort of into the fold that Brighton could could land this summer. I think especially when you consider the likelihood that clubs will be tempted more by money this summer than in years past because everybody, you know, really is, is pretty short on cash. Um, so let's see. We'll, we'll add it up at the end and see if we come to 83 or if it's a little bit more or a little bit less. Uh, you know, first of all, Daddy Ryan. Um, the independent value him at $5 million, um, with a permanent move to Arsenal. And or turning his loan, his loan move permanent, rather. And I believe that deal is already in the works, or at least if you believe uh, what some of the tabloids are writing. I think he picked up a, a clean sheet today, actually, in, in Arsenal's win over, over Newcastle. And, and I'm fine with that move. Um, you know, Daddy's been a real servant to the club. and But I, th- I think Brighton are, are looking for bigger and better things. Um, you know, n- no pun intended, towards uh, Daddy's shortness. But, but I'm fine with this move. I know he was an Arsenal fan growing up, um, so I wish nothing but the best for him. But I do think Brighton can get about $5 million, um, from Arsenal for that loan to be made permanent. Uh, Yves Basuma, the independent rate, this move at £45 million. Pounds. And again, if you believe the tabloids, there's just a ton of supposed suitors. Um, I've seen uh, values in excess of $50 million recently. I've seen Paris Saint-Germain in, in, involved with him now, and again, all the all the all your stereotypical big clubs in, in England uh, supposedly have come knocking. Um, so so we'll just see what happens uh, with Eve Basuma. What a player he is! Obviously, we're all blessed to watch him um, put on the blue and white every weekend. But but my question is, could we hold on to him? Because if you believe what the Independent is suggesting here, that leaves about you know forty million plus pounds from players that are departing not named Eve Basuma so if you can hold on to him for another year does his stock continue to grow do clubs have more money next summer to give Brighton for Eve Basuma does Eve Basuma is Eve Basuma desperate to move now he is kind of at the peak of his career age-wise I believe he's right in his early mid-20s right like 24 years old something like that so this is prime time for him to move on um, but maybe Brighton can hold on to him for another summer. We'll see. Uh, Davy Proper, the independent value of this deal at $9 million. And again, lots of links to PSV Eindhoven um, and the Dutch Everdivisie. And I f- but I find it unlikely that a club like PSV Eindhoven, especially in this market, um, you know, with COVID and everything, can come up with a figure like $9 million. Um, I think Brighton could get a few million for him if he if we do ship him off to the Everdivisie. Again, Brighton really don't like to do business in the league, um, in the Premier League rather, um, which I am am all in on. I you know there's no reason that we could make our that we should do business with with clubs we're competing with unless it's extremely advantageous for us. Um, but I'll, I'll say five million dollars uh, at, at the most if we ship him. If we ship him to the Everdivisie, Ali raises your hand bash. Same thing. The independent rate. This move at eight million. Um, 
but you know, for me, Brighton aren't going to get eight million for him ever. Um, especially if we ship him up to the Everdivisie. I know he's been linked with with Ajax and and a few other clubs um, in the Netherlands. But I'd I'd be happy with a few million uh, dollar return. That that experiment just hasn't worked out. I don't have, you know I don't have any hate towards the guy. But it just hasn't worked, and if Brighton can get anything back for him at all, even if it's just a few million, you know, I think, I think that'd be great for the club. Shane Duffy, the independent rate, him at four million, and I think, I mean, his value has really fallen off a cliff with, with his loan spell at Celtic, which has been an unmitigated disaster. Uh, by the way, it's not really his fault. I mean, he hadn't played consistently in a long time, and then Neil Lennon had no idea how to use him, in my opinion. Um, so that really hurts Brighton in terms of Duffy's value. The independent rate, $4 million. Again, I think maybe a few million. Uh, if Brighton are lucky, I think probably the championship is more like where Brighton were looking at. I know he was linked with Leeds and, and West Ham last summer. Maybe we're kicking ourselves for not for not getting a little bit more and, and shipping him off. He would have, as it turns out, he would have hurt our <laughs> – he would have weakened our Premier League uh, – competitors but um but again I, I don't have any any qualms with with Brighton not doing business in the Premier League uh, but again yeah a few million hopefully uh for Shane Duffy uh Jason Malumbi is is a really interesting one uh the independent rate this transfer at, at about six million I I really like Jason Malumbi I I think I think he can and will be a solid box-to-box Premier League midfielder I know he's a def- specialized as a, as a defensive midfielder, and Brighton are really loaded at that position, and I, I just don't see how there's a pathway um, for Malumbi, which, is which again, is I think is a real shame. Um, I know Preston want to make that move permanent, but can they fork over $6 million for him? I'm, I'm not sure. I was hoping, to be completely honest, I was hoping Brighton could hold out for a little bit more, and I know we don't like doing business in the Premier League, but maybe... Maybe that's what it take would take to get maximum value for Malumbi. I don't think he's going to have a lot of a lot of value from clubs outside outside of England. Maybe Scotland. Um, actually, could we convince you know Rangers or Celtic to fork over a little bit of money for him? You know, maybe uh, Bernardo four million. Um, again, this would be making the RB Salzburg loan move permanent. I think four million seems quite generous, but um, if Brighton can get anything back, I think that's a bonus. Um, and again, that's another transfer that really didn't work out. Um, coming over for, from Leipzig, I, I had a little bit higher expectations for for Bernardo. I think he, I thought he would contribute a lot more than, than what he did, but he just really hasn't looked comfortable in the Premier League since he's been at Brighton. And, um, yeah, hopefully the Red Bull franchise are desperate to have him back in the loop uh, for some reason. And, and, if, and if Brighton could get $4 million, I think that would be, that would be great. Uh, what else do we have here? Florian Andone, the independent rate of $2 million. Uh, there's just no way that happens. Uh, that'll be a free transfer. Uh, but I think that's, it's probably good to get him out of the club because, I, for some reason, I always associated him with kind of a weird <laughs> negative energy. Um, which I didn't like. Uh, he did score a clutch goal against Huddersfield at home a, a couple years ago, but he, you know, not my favorite Brighton player of all time. Um, that's for sure. And, that, and then Jose Esquerdo on a free transfer. 
Um, his contract is up, so he probably is out. Uh, I'm, I'd be curious to see if Brighton offer him like a one-year show-me type contract, but I, I don't know if you would really want to take that um, unless he's, uh, you know, really likes living on the South Coast uh, because he is, what is he, 28 now? So he's probably looking for a little longer-term deal. I'm not sure where he would need to go in order to, to get more than a one- or a two-year deal. But I, I do feel like there would be clubs that, that could take a risk on him because, you know, we saw a couple years ago he does have a knack for putting the ball in the back of the net. He is an incredibly one-footed player, uh, really no left foot of any kind. But, but he did score a few really nice goals for Brighton, that's for sure. And then one player that, that the Independent didn't include in their article what, that I thought was kind of interesting was Christian Walton because, again, if you believe some of the tabloids, you know, the rumor on the street is that he's expected to extend his contract for Brighton, basically sign a new deal, and then and then depart this summer on some sort of a transfer fee. Uh, there's definitely no pathway for him now into the first team. You know, Robert Sanchez has that number one shirt locked down pretty well. Grand Potter really likes Jason Steele as the backup. Um, plus, Brighton have already been linked uh, this summer again, same as last summer with, with the uh, Besiktas keeper. Um, what's his name? Ergurkin Ur- uh, Kakir, the the Besiktas keeper, and, the, and he's a, the Turkey number one, by the way. Um, supposedly we've already inquired about a twenty million dollar fee, and and I'm all about competition. I do think Brighton need a better number two. Uh, no offense to Jason Steele, but for me he's really a number three. Um, but I also feel like we could get a decent uh, number two for you know less than ten million and save the rest for a striker. Um, but you know, again, any, any improvement is good improvement. Um, and, and Brighton do seem to hit the nail on the head, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, with shot stoppers. So, uh, you know, again, you know, in total, uh, the independents say, you know, that's, that's going to net us 83 million pounds. I really think it's, it's probably more like 75 million. I'm just not as, I just don't think Brighton will, will, will take as much money from, Bernardo, Shane Duffy, Alirazi Johanbash, and, and and Davy Proper basically as as the independent do not that they're not uh, valued as such, but just with the current climate and and the way they've performed at Brighton recently, um, I just I just can't see. But again, if you remove Eve Basuma from that, that still leaves you know supposedly thirty million thirty million pounds. Um, you know, is that enough to sign a quality striker or a striker that's at least more clinical? Than what we've got in the squad now, probably. But I think it might also cost a little bit more than that, especially if we want to, you know, prize somebody over who's a little bit more highly profiled in terms of wages uh, and whatnot. Um, you know, Tammy Abraham being the latest link, a, a signing that I actually would, would be quite high on. And I, I do also think that Brighton have a few U23s. And a few kids on loan that could step in and help in terms of, you know, building some squad depth, which which could allow Tony Bloom and the rest of the of the uh, staff to go pretty cheap on the squad and, and go pretty heavy on first team spending over the summer. Which again, if that allows us to make a big striker signing or 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 you get a big striker and you you bring in somebody else, maybe a right winger or, or maybe a number two. Um. I think that would be that would be great.
And then just to round out this podcast, um, you know, next weekend we go to Wolves, we go to Molyneux. Uh, Wolves, who we haven't lost to in the Premier League, uh, and Wolves without Raul Jimenez, um, they just are such an inferior team to the team that they are, you know, with Jimenez. And again, Brighton haven't lost to them for whatever reason. I think it's the Nuno system that um, just doesn't work against Brighton for, for whatever reason, and doesn't matter if it's Chris Hutton or, or Graham Potter in there, which is really weird because Brighton, you know, historically have in the Premier League at least, just been killed by teams that play a really efficient counterattack. But for whatever reason, Wolves just haven't been able to get that right. And and they haven't played this weekend, um, so I'm not sure how they're looking um, you know, recently, as or at least in the immediate lead-up to the Brighton game. But they were hammered 4-0 by Burnley last week. I mean, Burnley. Brighton could ne- Brighton would never lose to Burnley 4-0. We had the 3-1 at the Amex a couple years ago in the rain. Um shocking refereeing in that one don't even get me started but I feel that Brighton are very beatable or not I feel that Brighton can beat Wolves quite comfortably and that Wolves are very beatable but I'm looking for for three points next weekend for sure and I'm also looking for that record points tally this year I think it's looking looking very likely at this point when you consider I know Brighton's running is quote-unquote hard but they've had pretty good success against a few of these teams um, you know, especially Wolves and then and then Arsenal at the end of the season. I think we can beat 41 points. I also feel like we might even be able to sneak up the table a little bit more than 14th. Certainly, we've got to get past the scum of South London. Anyway, up the Albion. Have it. <laughs>